that's so good. I always love when the Christian message is some kind of reclaiming something back from a culture or, or a world or something that thinks it gets to steal stuff uh, from us. Like I, I love a phrase that might be a slang in some circles that it gets put back where it belongs in, in worship, that God is good and he is God and he's almighty. I just, I just think that's fun. I like that kind of stuff. Uh, it run, I run into it this time of the year all the time, like I, because I grew up in an era of evangelical Christianity when the church getting together and painting pumpkins would have been controversial, right? Because absolutely, obviously pumpkins are the devil's fruit or <laughs> vegetable or whatever they are. I don't, I don't know what a pumpkin is, but it's a, but it, clearly that was a, and, and, and over the years getting to realize, no, no, wait, God, God makes pumpkins. It's the, the, the devil didn't make anything. He can't create anything. He didn't create black cats or bats or anything else. Like that's all, all those are God. God did all those and they don't get, somebody gets to steal those. I always, always loved the, the viewpoint that, you know, that every day is a day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it unless it's October 31st because that's the devil's day. Like that's a, like, no, no, that one, that one's his too. He, he gets that one too. So uh, we don't live in fear of that kind of stuff. I hope as Christians that we recognize God's power shines through and blows through any barrier Anyway, I just, I love that kind of stuff. I think that's a great message. And our natural temptation, as was said in the video, of to put, when this phrase was used in the video, the first service, both Paul and I were like, oh, that's, that's good. The idea that we put parameters on God's plans. And what, a, what a great line. God is the star of our stories, not us. He's the protagonist of the story, not us. We saw that when we studied uh, when we studied Mark long ago, and when we went through John, and when we studied through Daniel, realized, in fact, it was an insight to realize how much Daniel knew that God was the protagonist of the book of Daniel, not Daniel. Um, and we're seeing that already in Samuel. God is the protagonist of the story of Hannah, and the protagonist is going to be the protagonist of the story of Samuel and David as well as we dive into these. What a, what a beautiful picture. And discipleship is us learning to live in that truth together living in the truth together that God is the star of the show, not us. And he's the one who's working in these fantastic ways um, with us, um, so often with us. So much of the ground that I've gained um, in the victory over my own addictions to pornography, even to sugar to a certain degree, although I'm, I'm not fully conquered that, the, um, the, uh, uh, but that, that whole picture of, of the challenges that we face as broken people, that the community, Christian community, is so much of the power of that that gives us the opportunity, those friendships, to learn of that. Our life groups are meant to help us live in the truth that, um, that, that God is the protagonist of our story. He is the hero in our tale. Um, and, and to make the friendships, you have the opportunity to make the friendships that are really what God uses, the friends that, that um, are, are closer than a brother, the friends that, that sharpen a friend, um, that, that help us to grow and learn together and all these things. And by the way, if, if you want to dive in, if you're ready to just dive into that region, is a great place to just jump in um, with both feet with whatever those are. So I really want to encourage that. Keeping in mind, Christian community is not a replacement for Christ. And Christian community is one of the tools that Christ uses um, to change us and grow us. Um, Christians are always going to let us down. You can't replace Christ with other Christians. That's a huge mistake. Um, if you haven't met you and, and other Christians, you, you, you uh, well, I don't know how that would be possible, but if you have, you should know by now. Like, that's, that's not how that's going to work. Um, we cast our cares on him. And in fact, I want to start with that passage from 1 Peter today, because as we've been talking about the life of Hannah, this passage is one that has been jumping out to me. 1 Peter 5, 
in verses 6 and 7. Uh, you can turn over there or it'll be on the screens. Um, I'd, I'd love to encourage you, if you have a Bible uh, with you, if you have a Bible, get it, keep it, because among other things, it then is something you can look back on and see what's highlighted, what's underlined, where are the notes, that kind of stuff. It's a powerful thing. And especially in today's with the digital age, and you can scroll just like they used to scroll in the old days. Um, and you can scroll over and highlight and make notes and things like that and keep it there. That's, that's, um, those are really powerful for us to go back to later. So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. When we wrap up today's talk, we're going we're gonna to read together Hannah's prayer, the song that she prays. And she's going to use some of this exact same language. In fact, I think it's very likely that Peter has her prayer in mind when he wrote this. Hannah has cast her cares upon the Lord. She accepted that he cared for her. It's amazing the power of laying something down on his altar. It's amazing how powerful that can be in our lives. Um, we have this stage here, and this middle part is lower so that, and, and the other, so that whatever height is, health, is, is, is easy for you to kneel at and to lay your hands on and to, and to pray at, that you would be invited to do that at the end of the service. Um, my, my sister would know this, and Lance might know it, but probably no one else in the room would, would have any way of knowing that during my high school years, I went up to the altar pretty much every single Sunday um, as a teenager to pray. Um, I knelt at that altar at church every Sunday, some, very often by myself, um, to leave um, and to ask God to give my life, to keep my life on whatever path he had for me, despite my best efforts to wander off and to veer off. Um, something you need to determine, you may need to determine now that in, in about 30 minutes, I need to come up and lay something up here on this altar um, and, and leave it there. And by the way, that doesn't just mean bad things. It can be good things. It can be your plans, which may be good plans, but they need to be subordinated to his plans. Um, you're the good thing. She's, we're going to watch Hannah leave a good thing behind at the tabernacle this, this morning. So verse 19 in, in 1 Samuel 1 they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord, and then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So this is a miracle that we're going to see happen, but the miracle, this isn't an immaculate conception. Um, they're going to have um, uh, Samuel the old-fashioned way. That's how that's going to happen. Um, but, but it's wild to me reading this. What struck me about this is um, we live in a broken world. They lived in a broken world. It is a miracle that things work the way they were always intended to work, that things work the way God designed them. And that in this story right here is a miracle. That says all you need to know about the world we live in. We live in a world so broken that sometimes it takes a miracle just for things to be normal. I'll say that again. We live in a world so broken that sometimes it takes a miracle just for things to be normal. And so when we, when we experience in our life the normal, understand that may be the result of a miracle in your life. 20, verse 20, and in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. I'm just going to read through the passage, and we'll come back and unpack it. said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to, pay, went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him only. May the Lord establish his word. 
So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. So let's go through and unpack these. Starting in in verse 20, let's unpack. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I had asked for him from the Lord. So this word, this Hebrew word, Samuel, it's a combination of words, Samu, um, uh, placed, given, set, is the idea. So something that is placed where it's supposed to be. Something that is put there, it's given, it's, it's handed off. El, of course, anytime you see El in a word, in a Hebrew word, it's going to be one of the names of God, the title, actually, God, El. And so, Samuel. But here's what's interesting. It's also very similar to the word heard, heard from God. So you may remember the name Ishmael, which is obviously very close to Shmuel. So that's how they would have pronounced Samuel, Shmuel. So Ishmael and Shmuel sound obviously very similar. They're, they are. And I actually think probably that Hannah is telling a story, as Hebrew names often do. God has heard me, and he has given to me what I asked. And this, so she names her son this name. God has given me what I asked. He heard me, and he's giving it. Verse 21, the man Elkanah and his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. Now, I got to tell you guys, one of the fun things about studying Scripture in order to prepare for a sermon is that I get to sometimes uncover stuff that is very controversial, that, that you're, you, it's like, why is that a controversy? Um, but, but it's always wild to see where Christian scholars have controversy. And this verse creates controversy um, among Christian scholars and, and Hebrew scholars. And it is the fact that it says that Elkanah went to the Lord to the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. What vow? Has Elkanah made a vow so far in this chapter, in this book? He has not. We've not heard him give a vow. Then what's being talked about here? What's going on? Had Elkanah somehow like aligned with Hannah's vow? Had he been like, oh yeah, God, me too. Like, is that, is that what happens here? We, we really don't know. Had he made a vow that we just don't read about? Like, oh, of course he had a vow. Maybe even he was part of a Nazarite vow that he wanted to go up and pay off, and we're supposed to somehow pick that up, or that the original readers would have understood that. This is kind of cool. It is also true, as you can find in the book of Numbers and according to Jewish thought, that a husband could nullify his wife's vow, even a vow made to God. Now, I said in the first service, I started to say, I don't know how I feel about that, but I realized, no, I know, I know how I feel about that. I'm really, not uncomf- I'm really uncomfortable with that. Like, I, I really don't like the idea of a husband coming along behind his wife going, the wife says, I make this vow to the Lord, and the husband coming along going like, yeah, no, 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 God, ignore that. Belay that order. We're doing something different here. Now, uh, Paul showed me between the services, and I had glances, but I hadn't seen the whole passage here, that it actually clarifies and unpacks the wrong in that is laid on the husband. So if that vow was made between God and the woman and the husband comes along and nullifies it, the husband is now fully responsible for whatever that was. As in, if, he, if that vow was a good vow and, she, and he nullified it, he and God are going to have to have a talk about that. 
And, and so it's fascinating to see this authority structure play out. But I think that's what's going on here is that he does not nullify, by not nullifying the vow, he is now a part of the vow. He is now responsible for the vow. And so he needs to go up and make a proclamation to God at the tabernacle that he is fulfilling this vow, that there's something to that that he's going to do. Regardless, Elkanah went and took his family again, but Hannah stayed behind. Which makes sense. If this is the next year, if this is one year later, then at the oldest, she has a 10-week-old. At the oldest. And every reason to think it may be a little bit, he may have been a little bit younger than that even. So here you have, Hannah's going to stay behind where the rest of the family goes, but she's staying behind now with this baby. What a cool picture. Verse 22, but Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Ouch. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you, wait until you have weaned him, only... May the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Another controversial phrase here. May the Lord establish his word. You may have noticed, here we are in verse 20s, in the 20 verses of chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, and God has not yet spoken. Now we're going to hear about why that is soon. But he has not yet spoken. So when it says, may God... May God um, establish his word. What, what word are we talking about here? I, I think there's several things going on here. One, this is the generalized promise that the people of Israel have. The generalized promise that God is going to bless them. May God establish that in you. And God, may God protect you while I'm gone. That's part of it. I also think there's a little bit of a reminder here. God, Let God establish his word. In other words, God has followed through with his word. Hannah, make sure that you follow through with yours. There's a vow here that our family has made, and as hard as it's going to be for both of them, I'm sure. Now, I also want to unpack, because it's almost a little bit like an Alfred Hitchcock story, that, especially for the ladies in the room, and the moms in the room especially, that I have not yet given you an age for how old Samuel was when he got left in the tabernacle. Because if you're like my wife, that's the information you need. You need to know how old a child is being left behind in the tabernacle. Because you need to know whether you need to be excited about this story and at the same time, just a little angry. Like, just a little like, wait a minute, she did what? Like, that's back there somewhere. Like, I need to know. I'm not going to be able to rescue you from that. And and according to the internet, thank you, internet, um, we have, on average, in 2022, Nursing mothers around the world wean at somewhere around age four. 4.2 is the average age around the world when mothers wean their babies. Um, again, that's an interesting statistic. It makes you wonder, how do they know that? But they claim to know it, so they, they claim. And, and the range is from one month to seven years. And different cultures do it in different ways, at different ages and that kind of stuff. Um, And a passage from different Jewish writing actually indicates that it was the habit of Jewish women to nurse for three years. Um, And and by the way, that fits in with this passage pretty well, as I'll reference here in a second, um, that somewhere around three or later, between three and four, is probably your best guess. 
And for no other reason that the passage tells us that they bring a three-year-old bull. Now, there's a lot of things that could represent or could mean, um, but one of it may be that the passage is aligning between the age of Samuel and the age of the bull in some way. Um, We don't know. Um, So why do I mention this? Again, because 100% of the moms want to know how much they have to grieve with Hannah about leaving her child behind. Some of you have children in this age range, in the three to seven age range. And if you take a moment and imagine leaving the tabernacle and leaving your son, leaving your child in that tabernacle as you left, you can imagine the the pain and challenge that that would have been, probably. Um, But it is my opinion, just to comfort you a little bit, that Eli is essentially adopting this child. Um, I think that even the tabernacle kind of as a whole, God via the tabernacle, is adopting this child, is adopting Samuel as a son to be raised there. And we're going to learn soon in the next chapter that there are men and women serving in the tabernacle. It's, it's not a very savory passage where we learn that, but we're going to learn that there are men and women serving in the tabernacle. Um, and so it wasn't like he was abandoned, you know, left at the church to wander the halls um, like our kids do here, but it is a still, this must have been at the same time, pretty heartbreaking, even in the celebration it represents. And I want to take a minute and talk about this because there is a clear and and powerful link between some amazing mothers in Scripture, especially when we consider, as we've already looked at, these two Redeemer characters and then the capital R Redeemer, the Redeemer, and how their stories align. The first powerful Redeemer of God's people, um, his mom is a woman named Jochebed. Um, Pharaoh had given the command to destroy the sons born to Hebrew slaves. And listen to what it says in Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi, and later we'll learn his name is Amram, and went to took his wife, a Levite woman, who we learn later is Jochebed. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took, him, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds in the riverbank. So our first redeemer in, in, for the Hebrew people is left by his mother in the Nile River. It's an amazing picture. Now, again, I know you've seen the movies where now the, the baby is washed downstream and hippopotami try to kill it, or hippopotamuses, however you say that, try to destroy it, all that. That's, that's not biblical. She just, it's, it is set there carefully in the bulrushes where um, the Egyptian, probably the Egyptian royalty bathed. But it's, it's probably a better picture. So the second one, obviously, is, but still, still, does that minimize a mother walking away from her three-month-old sitting in a basket in the Nile River? I don't think it does. This is a powerful role of the mom here. The second is, of course, Hannah, leaving her son at somewhere three to four years old, maybe as old as seven, but three to four years old in the tabernacle with God. And then the third is a Hebrew woman in the line of Judah who lived in Nazareth. When she took her son to be redeemed in the temple, she met a righteous man named Simeon in Luke chapter 2. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, look at this parenthetical, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. In none of these three Redeemer stories, um, and in in our history, we would say these are the three of the great Redeemers of Scripture, Uh, obviously Jesus being the Redeemer, the final great Redeemer. In none of these stories is the mom the main figure. 
But they're each given the responsibility and the glory of launching these redeemers into the world with, their, with God's people. And this is in so many ways the lot of mothers everywhere, to languish and love and launch and so often to fade into the background of their own children's stories. In a kingdom that elevates, and I think this is significant, before we roll into minimizing that in any way, consider that we serve in a kingdom that elevates service and sacrifice and selflessness above all things. The examples of Christ living those three things out. In a kingdom like that, surely moms have a special reward. Whether a woman conceives or carries or bears or fosters or adopts or mentors or teaches or disciples children to the degree that any woman exemplifies the maternal traits of God, she is a mother. That is my definition and our definition really of what a mom is. To the degree that any woman exemplifies the maternal traits of God, she is a mother. Verse 24, and when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. This is noted right here at the beginning for us. Maybe this is even Samuel's description of himself. The child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. By the way, these amounts do not make it clear if there's some special sacrifice going on here. Um, there's, there's not the, the right perfect puzzle pieces to indicate this is a certain sacrifice at a certain time or in a certain way. Most likely, it's just one of the daily burnt offerings with an added bonus with flour and wine to be connected to it. Some authors even think that this is a sign of Elkanah and Hannah's generosity, that they are bringing the very best to the tabernacle to honor God, to honor their son, to honor Eli with the very best stuff. Um, and connected to the birth of a child or the ritual purity. Verse 26, and she said, so she comes in and finds Eli with the child and says, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Now, I do want to take just a second and unpack a kind of a fun picture it is, if you've been in ministry long, if you've been discipling and teaching and leading and doing that kind of stuff very long, then you've probably experienced one of these wonderful moments that I think Eli experiences here. Now, you remember I said last week, I think Eli does just the very bare minimum. Like, I'm not impressed by Eli in this passage at all. But Eli's, Eli's ministry to Hannah was like, oh, well, I hope God gives you what you want. That's how it feels to me. He doesn't, we get no indication that he prayed with her or that he even heard her story or even knew what she had asked for. So, and yet God used Eli in that moment to comfort Hannah and then to provide for God himself to provide for Hannah to her. This is, this is a big deal because if you've been in ministry very long, you've experienced this. I suspect that Eli's going, I have no idea who you are. Then when she comes up, she's like, hey, I'm the one who four or five years ago who, who you said these nice words to as I was leaving. I was the one crying who you thought was drunk. Remember me? Remember that? Remember that woman? And Eli may be going, no, I, I have no, I, it doesn't, uh, oh well. But it's a, it's, it's a great picture. And if you've served in ministry very long, you've gotten to experience this. And if you have, rejoice in it when you do. Um, we've had that happen. I've had that happen several times. I have some, some really fun stories of, of God sending somebody back to me to tell me, hey, you, you thought you blew it, but you didn't. I was using you even when you didn't know you were being used. 
Um, I recently had a couple coming in for premarital counseling who said that the husband said, hey, you have no memory of this at all, I'm sure. Um, but God, God brought me to you a certain time. In fact, uh, when I told Paul about it, we were both laughing at the number of miracles involved here. So, so the first one was he called around to several churches just randomly. And of all the churches he called, only one answered their phone, and that was us. And that's a miracle. Um, we, we are not known for that. Like, that's not what we're good at always. Like, that's not one of our high points is, is getting that kind of stuff. Now we have people volunteering and serving and leading. Um, I know we don't use the word volunteer. We, we have people leading and serving in, in, in those areas of the front desk and answering the phone. They're much better at it. But back in those days, we weren't so good. So that's one. Two, apparently, they got on the, he got on the phone with me and said, hey, can I come in and talk with you right now? And, and I, I apparently said, sure, yeah, right now would be great. I've got nothing. That's a miracle. Um, that doesn't ever happen either. What an, what an amazing thing that God allowed for that, to create that opportunity. And apparently he came in and shared with me what was going on in his heart in this dark place. I was even wondering, like, I wonder if it's even me. Maybe he confused me with Paul or somebody else. Like, maybe that's a, because some of y'all do that. I don't know if you know that. Some of you, which I don't, we're both redheaded, so I guess that's why. But, but the, that, that he he said, and you gave me a copy of Ragamuffin Gospel. And I was like, no, 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 that sounds like me. That must have done that. And his, his fiance said, yeah, he's, he's kind of underplaying it a little bit. Like, you probably saved his life that day. He was in such a dark place. Wow. Now, notice, I'm an interchangeable person in that story. God did something really cool. And, and it just so happened I got to be involved in that. And when, you, when someone comes back years later and says, hey, you don't, you know, you don't know about this, but God used you. One of my favorite stories that Ginger and I love to tell is about a guy named Tim who was in our youth group. I'm not going to tell the whole thing because it's very long, but the quick version is that, is that Tim was one of those kids who could just suck the life out of any group of people. Um, you know teenager kids like that? Any of y'all know those kids? So he would, um, and the, we used to say the worst thing about Tim is that it was his perfect attendance. Uh, <laughs> is that... Uh, he would come into a small group that I would be leading of, of freshmen, and boy, we tried. I mean, we tried to engage him like, hey, Tim, tell us about your answer. Give us your thought. And his ability to just go like, oh, I don't know. He literally, the kid would sit with his shoulders where your backside is supposed to be in a chair. And it was, it was like the weirdest. I even went to school to get lunch with him to think like, maybe that'll break him out of, his, of, of whatever's here. And there's a whole table full of them. They're all sitting like that at the lunch table with their eyes like, it was It was surreal. Nothing ever got through to Tim. Nothing ever made a dent. He never connected, and then he just kind of vanished. And several months, maybe even years later, at least a year later, we get a phone call, and Ginger's like, you know somebody named Tim? I'm like, no. Pick it up, and it's that Tim. And, and he says his name. He's like, hey, I'm Tim. I used to come to the youth group. And I, 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 honestly, I thought, I need, and I need to come bail you out of prison, right? Isn't that that's what you're about to say? And, and, he, and our kid, he says, hey, I'm in Cairo the one in Egypt. And I'm part of a soccer team. I'm, I, kept my, I played soccer all through high school, and he had never connected to any of my soccer stories, not once. And he's like, hey, I play soccer. I'm like, you never, never thought. To, anyway, and, and I'm the goalie for, our, for the youth, America's youth team. Like, I was, I was goalie. Never, no, nothing, Tim, no connection at all. <laughs> and, and he goes, um, so anyway, we just played the Egyptian team, and we won. And our coach said we could call two people and let them know. And I called my mom, and then I called you because I knew you'd be excited for me. And I'm like, Bruh! I mean, just, just bawling. I'm just like, God, seeing God do these things. And I, when I read this story, I connect with that of Eli. Can you imagine this woman walking up to Eli like, hey, hey, see this five-year-old kid? Like, he's yours now. Because you prayed, like, he's going to now serve in the, in the tabernacle with you. And like a little priest, as we're going to see in the next chapter, like he's, 
He's now come alongside. I'm leaving him here. I'm leaving him here because of your momentary kind of half-hearted prayer. God didn't really need you for that, but I'm leaving him here because I've made a promise to God to do that. What a cool thing that is. I hope God gives you moments like that when he does cherish them. But the language here is so strange. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. I am real. I just hate that word. I just, I just hate it. Like the first time I read it, I was like, I recoiled. Like lent to the Lord? Does this sound like Hannah at all? Like, oh yeah, I'm going to loan him to God for a while. Like, no, that makes no sense in the English. That doesn't seem to fit. And I, I was like, I, I'm going to have to learn to live with it if it's best. Fortunately, I wasn't alone. Every commentary I found hated the word lent there as well. And so I was really encouraged. Let me, let me show you where this word is also used. Exodus 12, 36 and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. That phrase, what they asked, is the word lent. Now clearly that does not mean, hey, yeah, I'll let you borrow that for a little while. Which is what kind of what we mean, we mean when we use the word lent. This is, you gave me something good. And I am returning it to you. In fact, maybe the better understanding is that she is saying, I'm giving you back the child that you lent to me. Um, I asked for a son, and you gave me this son, and now I am returning him to you. You have called for this. this is, that's the idea. And so I like, I like that, that we're not stuck with the East Texas, at least, understanding of the word lent. It is, this is something very different from that. This is, no, no, you bestowed something on me, and now I am returning that plunder to you. You have plundered the enemy for my sake, and now I return it to you. And then it says, and he worshiped the Lord there. Again, major controversy because of the Hebrew here. And I'm going to go out on a limb because I have an opinion. Um, some ancient copies, by the way, have the plural here. Some of your Bibles may actually have plural, the word they. They worship the Lord there. That would make it easy, but it seems like the best case it to be made is that this is actually first person he. Some say the he here is Eli, that Eli worshiped the Lord there because he had just been given Samuel, and that his response is to worship. That'd be cool, and certainly works. It's possible. Some say it's Elkanah that Elkanah worships the Lord here, that he's there with his family, and that he leads everyone here in worship as they are leaving Samuel behind. Um, some say it's a reference to the whole family. Some say it's a reference to the fact that and Samuel lived there, that that's what it, it's essentially saying, and Samuel now lived and served and worshiped there, which is very plausible. In the Hebrew, it lacks clarity. So when I asked uh, people who have a much more Hebrew, understanding of Hebrew than I did. Part of my question was, what do you think? And part of my question was, am I wrong to say, I think this is Samuel? And I think this is three and four-year-old Samuel, who worships God in that moment. That I believe three and four-year-old Samuel worshiped here. And they all agreed, that is certainly one of the possible answers. Certainly plausible that that's the case. Um, in fact, several of them said, go for it. Um, so could it be Samuel, a child of three or four years old, worshiping. I want to unpack this especially for the children in the room. So if you're a kid in the room, I want you to pay special attention. Can children worship? Can children listen and learn? 
We talk a lot, a whole lot here about the love and value of the children that we have, of how we take it as a great gift and a great responsibility from God to equip them for ministry, how we're not offended by children being children. We're not offended or annoyed by children acting like, making noises like children, especially, and I just got to make a comment here on how much some, how many some of you adults can make opening up a piece of candy last for like 10 or 15 minutes. I mean, come on. <laughs> just kidding. Um, uh, of course, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 first, in first Corinthians 13 that it is our goal as believers to put childish ways behind us. Um, as we mature and as we develop, and part of our job as the fathers and mothers in these children's life is to help them do that, to help them learn to be reverent, to learn to pay attention, to learn to take notes, to learn to open up their scriptures, to learn to study, and to learn to sing, and to learn to do these different things. Um, we need to help our kids learn to love worship, and to learn to love church, and to learn to listen to draw pictures about the sermon or about the classes that they're in. And that we need to be modeling these things for our kids as well. When they look around, they should see other adults engaged, learning, listening, writing notes, paying attention, and drawing pictures connected to the sermon, if that's you, right? Whatever that happens to be, let's teach our kids. It is okay to, while we love and accept the fact that our kids are kids, and we know it's a huge joy that we have kids in our church and in our services, at the same time, of course, we also want to teach our kids modesty. It's okay to teach our kids modesty. No, we're not wearing that. No, we're not doing that. No, we're not acting in that way. That's okay to teach our kids modesty. It's okay to teach our kids self-control, patience, learning. Kids, we love, I love to see you sing, take notes, learn, ask questions, greet people. Probably the number one thing I hear from people who visited only once or twice is when we have young people greeting people at the door. That's probably the number one thing I hear later from people when they go, I visited your church and the, the young people greeting these young, it was amazing. I love that. I love seeing that. People love to see the life and the youth that are here. Um, I love to see people serving and all the rest. And we all need help in this, by the way. We need teachers and servants and leaders to equip our kids. We need people willing to be special buddies for some of our kids. Listen, when it comes to, when it comes to my kids, we'll, I'll take all the help we can get. This is true for all of us as families, right? This is what it means to be a dysfunctional family, which we are as a church. We are a big dysfunctional family. What that means is when I show up and I join, as Rich Mullins used to say, here's what I'm saying. I need your help. I need your help in my life. I need you to confront me when I'm in sin. I need you to call me out when I'm misbehaving. I need you to encourage me when you see me do well. I need you to pray for me all the time. That's what we're all saying by being here. What, what a sad world it has been so often that going to church is meant to be a proclamation of, I have it all together. In my opinion, that is almost the exact hellish mantra against what church is all about. What church is all about is we're going like, now nah, I don't have it all together. If I did, I wouldn't be here. That's what that means. We all need this help. And we, we need this help. If we're going to love and equip our kids well, it's going to take a lot of us. I can tell you that young Chris would have learned to love church and love to worship much earlier if I'd been invested in by more adults willing to invest in me, even when I was a discipline problem. And you know I was. You know. You know that had to be the case. That's what dysfunctional family means. I need your help. Our kids need your help growing a sticky 
faith. A faith that holds on when the pressures of the world are demanding that it go away. How are our kids going to hold fast to that? They need lots of adults investing that. Um, some kids do it easily and some don't. I'm going to take a second and teach you a parenting principle that, that Ginger and I get to experience all the time. In fact, we had an, a look this morning on this principle. This morning on this. So every kid, every kid has things they need to learn. That's what it means to be a child is there's lots to learn. Adults do too, but kids do. Some kids, when you say, okay, this is wrong, and they do something out of line, or they discipline, they don't pay attention, they don't whatever, and you go, you know what, we're going to do a little discipline here, we're, whatever that means. It doesn't just mean punishment. There's lots of forms of discipline. Don't have time to talk about this morning, but we're going to say, we're going to invest one coin of discipline in you, and some kids, they get it. Yep, I hear you, mom and dad. That's a great point. I'm going to apply that to my lives now, my life now. We're going, to, we're going to make this happen like, got it. Yes, I have learned that, and I don't have to struggle with it anymore. These are the kids that fool you into thinking you're a good parent. <laughs> they, they, these kids, they just, they're quick adapters. They're just looking for the right answer, and when you give it to them, they're ready to move along. A lot of our kids, most kids, to one degree or another, don't start like that because of their temperament, because of the sin of Adam and Eve, because of the hard places they come from, you name it. They've got a whole lot of stuff stacked on that side. And, and what happens is, here's what we make mistake we make parents, is we go, no, see, I keep doing these things that I know are right. We talk and we pray and we study God's word and I'm patient with them and I'm loving with them and I'm, I'm trying to help them and I'm trying to take care of them and I'm trying to do these things and they're just not getting it. I keep doing it and they're just not getting it. And you never know, you never know. They don't get it, and they don't get it, and they don't get it, and they don't get it. And you keep doing these principles that are the right thing, and you never know when finally the right one, just one of these things, one more time, of teaching that principle, of teaching that thing, of helping them hear it yet again, and then suddenly they get it. And, and the very next thing, they may not get it again, and you may have to start all over again with this. With some, some kids are quick adapters, and some kids aren't. And the more trauma and difficulty and challenges they've had, and some of just temperament, some of us are just born stubborn. I know you guys. I work with you. So I are one of those. So this is a, sometimes we need this, but I want you guys to hear these principles that God has taught us. We stick with them and stick with them and stick with them. And then suddenly every once in a while we see a moment and we get, oh, they're getting it. Because the right thing is the right thing. Kids, I want you guys to hear from me. Kids. Samuel started serving in the tabernacle when he was very young, three or four years old maybe. He worshiped God when he was very young. You can too. We love to see that. We love seeing kids worship. Um, we love seeing kids worship in, in some of the unfiltered ways that only they can. Sometimes we have a child who will be spinning during one of the songs down here in their dress or or we had one who played a guitar right down here on the front row with, with John and his team for a long time. And, and they move past those things, but we, we all learn and grow. We still have someone who's disappointed every time she misses communion. And it's such a great reminder. I got to tell, we were talking about it one day, like, when was the last time you actually had tears because you missed communion? There's something, they're teaching us too. Guys, you're teaching us too, so you can do this too. Read and listen and learn. Mom and dads, adults, let's model this for them. Let them see us awake, prepared learning, serving, let us see him taking notes, saying amens, talking about worship at other times. 
Um, I loved seeing the, we had, we had in the area of 200 people here last night for that father-daughter event. But what a, what a great time for kids just to be invested in and to get to hear um, the testimony and the, the learning. I pray we're all been challenged by this precious family, Elkanah's family, that we've been gotten to meet this last month. And we're not quite done with them yet. At least one more Sunday that we're going to get to engage with them. And in fact, I want to close with Hannah's prayer. I want to close with that today, the prayer that Hannah, and I believe we are to get the impression that Hannah wrote this, prayed this, sang this on the road back to Ramah from Shiloh. So if you will stand with me, we'll read this together and let this challenge us as we are prepared to unpack this next week. And Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There's none holy like the Lord. There's none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes low and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The very words of God. I pray that as we have this moment of invitation, as the Spirit's been working in you, if you don't know Christ, if you don't know this Savior who has called us out of the orphanage to adopt us and make us his own, I pray this will be the day when you get to meet him, and we'd love for you to come tell us about it. If you've, already, if you've got anything you need to leave up here on the altar, if there's anything you've been holding on to, good or bad, that you need to leave here, we'd love to have you do that. If you want to pray with somebody over in the corner, there'll be a couple or some people over there who would love to pray with you, whatever it happens to be. And if you've been through our welcome home process and you're ready to join our dysfunctional family, then you can also let us know that this morning, and we'd love to pray with you for that as well. Whatever it is, however the Spirit is leading, I pray that you will listen and we will obey.